Colossians chapter 4 is where I'd like to begin this morning. You know, it's usually around this time of year I deliver a lesson encouraging us to commit or recommit to Bible reading for the year. We have our new uh, uh, five-day Bible reading schedule back there behind Justin where he's standing in the foyer. If that's something that's helpful to you, it's, there's plenty of copies. Take one, please. And there's tons of apps and things like this. And uh, I'll probably, in the weeks to come, deliver a lesson like that and, and maybe one with regard to worship. But this morning, though, I want us to think about another habit uh, that we should be in, a spiritual discipline, and that is prayer. And so Colossians chapter 4 is one of those passages wherein we find Paul's instruction in verse 2, devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, he says, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. He uses the same word in Romans 12 and verse 12 when he says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. It means, your Bible might just say, continue steadfastly in prayer. And that's, and that's the idea that I want us to think about this morning. We're familiar with these verses, familiar with 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Again, pray without ceasing, Paul says. And, and perhaps we're good about uh, praying before meals, or we, we come here and we pray before Bible class and in the assembly, we, we pray together, perhaps we lead prayers. But what I want us to consider this morning and ask ourselves is, could our lives be characterized by these expressions? Colossians 4 and verse 2, Romans 12 and verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Could we say that our lives are devoted to prayer? Could we honestly say we're continuing steadfastly in prayer? And if not, why not? What are some things that get in the way? What are some things that have gotten in the way? Perhaps in this past years, we're evaluating ourselves, we're looking back. You know, because Scripture does teach us that our prayers can be hindered, right? To use Peter's expression in 1 Peter 3, and no Christian wants to sabotage themselves in this regard, in this act of worship. And so how do, we, how do we end up hurting ourselves? How do we end up hurting the effectiveness of our prayers? This is what I want us to, to think about this, this morning. Uh, number one, I want to offer you six things. Number one, I think just plain ignorance can get in the way. Ignorance of God's will. Well, how could this possibly get in the way? Well, we just think to the most basic question back in the Gospels when Jesus was with his disciples and they come to him and they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. Even as John also taught his disciples in Luke 11 and verse 1. So that simply tells there's a correct way to do this. There's a correct, correct way to pray. The disciples understood this. And we discover that by teaching. We, we discover that by looking at the Lord's word and what he reveals about it. And so this is what Jesus does. He reveals that basic pattern of prayer for us, right? Pray in this way. Our Father is in heaven. Holy is your name, etc. And John would later write, this is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So notice that phrase in 1 John 5, 14. Uh, don't ask you to turn there, but just seize upon what he's saying. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And John's not talking about God's unrevealed will and providence, like I'm trying to guess or intuit what God has in store for the future and then try to align my prayers with that. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what John is teaching us is what does God reveal that he wants you to pray for? What did Jesus teach us, right? 
Uh, Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. That's a prayer according to his will. Uh, what did Paul request of the Colossians in Colossians 4, verses 1 through 4 there? He prayed specifically that a door would be opened for the gospel to be preached. That's a prayer that's according to God's will. So these are the things that John is, is talking about. Uh, and so we get in our own way by being ignorant about what God is calling us to pray for, right? Just plainly, to, to state it plainly. And uh, we can easily, I think, fall into misunderstandings or, or uh, as a result of maybe just the, the popular vernacular in the world about prayer. For example, you've ever heard someone say, uh, pray for a miracle. Or maybe they've asked you to do that. Pray for a miracle. Well, what does the Bible say about miracles? Should we be praying for them now? The Bible reveals that miracles served a unique purpose and place in God's plan, but he also promised that they would come to an end, both in ancient prophecy and in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, for example, verses 8 through 13, that tongues would cease, that the gifts of prophecy would cease. Now, that doesn't mean that God no longer heals or comforts or delivers or that we shouldn't pray for those things. Absolutely not. Just turn with me to James chapter 5 for a moment. He certainly does those things, and we should certainly pray for physical healing and comfort even. Uh, but to pray for a miracle is not a prayer that could be offered according to, to God's will. But rather, what does James say? James chapter 5 if you look in James 5 and verse 13, it says, is, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. All right. That's a prayer that's according to God's will, absolutely. Uh, but you see how quickly we can get ourselves into trouble if we just kind of adopt popular language or thinking of the religious world around us. How about praying to a human intercessor? Right? If someone wants to pray to a patron saint or maybe entreat Mary, the mother of Jesus, or any other deceased person, is that a prayer that's offered according to the will of God? Certainly not. Jesus instructed us to whom we are to pray and the only one whom we are to worship, and that is him. And so I can't petition the Lord through uh, another person or through a, a, certainly a deceased person or ask him to circumvent his plan of redemption, uh, you know, in the interest of one of, you know, my children or another family member. That's not a prayer offered according to God's will. So all of that to say, our prayers then can be hindered if they're not compatible with the teaching of, of Scripture. That's a very basic point, I know. But I say that to say this, the more we study and understand God's will as revealed in His Word, the more effective we can pray. Doesn't that make sense? Wouldn't that just naturally follow? Right. We read through the Psalms and we can understand how the Holy Spirit inspired those men to pray. We can look at Jesus' teaching and see the pattern that he gives us. We can read the New Testament and understand what we're to, what, not only how to pray, but what we're to be praying for. And so Bible reading and study, it's vital for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which is this one. It directly affects 
our, our prayers. Uh, number two, doubt and faithlessness. If you're still in the book of James, just go back to James chapter 1. Now, So from James chapter 5, turn over to James chapter 1, where James is telling us that a lack of faith can certainly hinder our prayers. James chapter 1, look in verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him, but he must ask in faith. He must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect what, that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so we get the picture. Right? James is describing this doubter as someone who's being tossed like the restless sea. He's got two minds, right? He's got one of faith. He's got one of, of doubt. <clears throat> and Scripture tells us that true faith requires us to believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him in faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Okay, so why do doubts creep in? How does this, how does this happen? How does this render us in, ineffective? We know it makes us ineffective, but why do we do it then? Well, I, let me draw a contrast between a couple of things before we go further down that road uh, and say that doubting and questioning are not the same thing. Uh, so I'm going to... Hopefully I'm not making distinction here without a difference, but I think the Bible, there, there is a distinction. I want you to think of uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, versus Zechariah, the father of John. So God sends Gabriel to both to give them a message about children that will be born in the future. Of course, Zechariah being the father of John the Baptist, he was given that revelation and what he was to name his son. And he had a question for Gabriel. He said, how, I'm, I'm old and my wife, how is this going to be? And Zechariah is struck blind, Gabriel says, for his disbelief in Luke 1.38. Um, excuse me, that's not uh, Zechariah's pa uh, passage. That's uh, where Mary... Oh, it's Luke 1.20 is the passage I was trying to think of. Luke 1.20, Gabriel says, Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my word. So Zechariah has this question... But God being God, knowing all things, uh, Gabriel d tells him, you, you're not believing the message that I'm, I'm telling you here. Uh, but Mary also had questions, but rather what is said of her or, or her response to the message that's given to her is, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Right? And so they both had questions, but clearly one was inflicted with a consequence that the other one wasn't because God says, through Gabriel, you've disbelieved of the message. So I think there's a distinction here. We can see doubting involves uh, disbelief and believing what maybe preferring what we think or what we see or what, or, you know, relying on our former experience. Uh, again, Mary had questions, right? Because she said, I'm, I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. So how am I going to have a son? And she gets the answer and she says, okay, let it be done according to your word. Uh, but evidently, Zachariah wasn't satisfied with that. Uh, so doubting is what we want to avoid. It's okay to inquire and ask questions and, and, and pray for things <clears throat> even that we're unsure about. Paul, think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 where he has, or is it 2 Corinthians 12 where he has that thorn, 2 Corinthians 12 where he has that thorn in the flesh that he wants removed. And he's asked three times for it to be removed, but God has said no. Um, Peter is a notorious example of this, right? As, as much as, as he is an example in 
a, a good way in a lot of ways. Uh, we know that he, he doubted at times. Matthew 14, verses 30 and 31. Remember that well-known section of Scripture where he is with Jesus on the Sea of uh, Galilee, or, or, or rather Jesus is walking to his disciples on water, coming to them in the boat, um, and Peter calls out to him to, to, to go out and, and meet him, and, and Jesus gives him that permission, and Peter's going, he's walking on the water. In Matthew 14, 30, it says, When he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of Peter. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Okay, so this is exactly what happens to Peter. Right? He's illustrating, I think, what I'm, what I'm describing. Right? He's relying, he's, he's trusting in what he sees and uh, in his previous experience. Right? This isn't right. Circumstances are bad. Uh, and he takes his eyes off the Lord and he begins to sink. Now, Peter was capable of walking on the water. Jesus authorized him to walk on the water. In fact, he was doing it at least for a little while. But when he came to doubt, this doubt caused him to sink. He had faith initially. He was doing the impossible, right? But he thought the wind and the waves made a more compelling argument, if you want to think of it that way, for what he was capable of doing. And so he failed. And and you remember on another occasion in, in a storm in Galilee, all the disciples were, were afraid. Jesus was sleeping in the boat, and they, you know, they're scared, and they're, uh, and they're trying to they wake him up. And, of course, he rebukes the winds and the waves and calms them. And then he turns to them, Matthew 8, 26, and says, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds of the sea and became perfectly calm. And so, again, here's another example where they're doubting his protection, and as a result of their fear... Jesus characterizes that as uh, uh, little faith. He doesn't use the word faithlessness, but we see the contrast there between faith and and doubt. And I think that that helps us understand what James means in James 1 and verse 6. We have to ask in in faith when we we pray. Uh, Because Satan wants to instill doubt. Satan wants to instill confusion. He wants to instill fear. Uh, But we have every reason to be confident in our God who loves us, who is, who is listening and to our prayers and wants to respond. Uh, we should be thankful and glad to have a God who is, again, loving and desires to know the cares of his people. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And Paul reminds us, if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And so God, God answers prayer, we must remember, according to our eternal needs, not necessarily according to our immediate earthly wants. Uh, he may answer no in some cases, as he did with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 that I mentioned a moment ago for that removal of thorn in his flesh. He may answer no for a while. There may be a, you know... Um, or he may say yes, but Paul uh, tells us that we can pray for such things and we should be confident. James tells us, rather, we must ask in faith. Just because our prayers are not answered exactly when or how we may like, that should never cause us to doubt our Lord. Okay, number three. 
this one may have been the first one to come to your mind, and that's sin, obviously, gets, gets in the way. Uh, turn with me to Psalm 66. I have Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 on the screen. You probably know that passage by heart where Isaiah tells us, it's not that the Lord can't hear what you're saying, it's that your iniquities, verse 2, have made a separation between you and your God so that he has hidden his face and does not hear. Uh, but turn with me to Psalm 66 for just a moment. Same, same point here, different, different passage. This is Psalm 66, beginning in verse 18. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Pretty hard to misconstrue that, right? If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer Blessed be God who has not turned away from my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. Solomon would say in Proverbs 28 that he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So that same teaching over and over again, we find that God's word must be obeyed. If I'm the kind of person who I'm just, re I'm just refusing or just blatantly ignoring the clear command of God and his, and his word, God is clear that he, my prayer is an abomination to him, is what he says. He's equating prayer to him to, to sin, so long as I regard wickedness in, in my heart. This is certainly something we need to, to take to heart. You know, we're in a, we just began a series in 1 Peter uh, a couple of weeks ago, and Peter in that first letter, <clears throat> he says quite a few things about prayer, actually, uh, that I want to draw your attention to. He, he mentions it three times, and he's, he's, there's something common in each of the three instances where he discusses prayer. Uh, one of those instances is what I, I alluded to earlier in the lesson, where I take the title from, uh, What Hinders Prayer. And he's addressing husbands and wives specifically. And he's, talk, he's telling husbands to deal with their wives in a godly and honorable way, so that your prayers will not be hindered. First Peter, that's in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, where he says, Regard her uh, as the weaker vessel, since she's a woman. Show honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So that's the first instance. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind. And then the second time, the very next paragraph, actually, verse 8, as he continues, he speaks to all Christians uh, about being... Submissive to one another, brotherly, kind-hearted, loving one another, uh, verse 9, not returning evil for evil, but instead giving a blessing. blessing. And then to substantiate that inspired teaching, he draws upon the Psalms. And this is what he says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So same principle we just saw in Psalm 66. Peter is quoting to substantiate the teaching that he's given. The third time he mentions prayer is in 1 Peter 4 and verse 7, where he says, The end of all things is at hand, so be of sound judgment, be of sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. Or your Bible might just say, for the sake of your prayers. Okay, three instances. What do they all have in common? In all three places... Peter is teaching us that living righteously 
is crucial to prayer. In the first instance, he's talking about a specific relationship between the husband and wife, right? Husbands, behave, conduct yourselves in a godly way towards your wives so that your prayers won't be hindered, right? So you see righteous living, crucial to prayer, not being hindered. And again, the same thing when he's talking to all Christians, so that your prayers will be heard by God. Verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And again, chapter 4 and verse 7 What's he talking about? Being sound judgment, sober spirit, righteous living again for the sake of your prayers. And we know that's not by accident. So all three are teaching us not that praying helps us to live right, though it does. That's also a biblical principle. That's true. But that right living helps us to pray, if you want to think of it that way. That God has appointed for us a way to live we're to avoid sin, turn away from sin, because that hinders our prayer. So we should resolve to live in such a way that our prayers will not be hindered. All right? It's not automatic. It's not just going to... That situation, you know, conduct is not something that happens to you. It's something you're completely in control of. Right? You're not passive in this regard. So It's easy enough to understand. I, I know. It's right, right there in black and white. But how many Christians think that they can live their lives one way during the week, however they please, and then offer genuine, pleasing prayer in an assembly such as this? Or, on, you know, or any other time? How many try to put God in some remote corner of their lives only to pray to him in a panic, like he's a cosmic vending machine? Okay, then I just go through the motions, push the right buttons, and then he's going to dispense whatever I want. No, it's not how it works. It's not who he is. We need to learn the lesson that David knew so well. That Yahweh will be near to those whose hearts are broken on account of their sins. Who develop a contrite spirit. Psalm 34 and verse 18. Now that doesn't mean, none of this has been to say that Christians, that children of God have to be that they're perfect or that they never sin so that their prayers are heard. No, none of us has reached permanent perfection. We won't this side of eternity. We're all still battling many weaknesses. But we can't deceive ourselves into thinking that I can pray acceptably if I, when I'm not even trying to battle. I mean, when I'm just, as David said in Psalm 66, regarding wickedness in my heart. Unless we're truly serious about denying ourselves, earnestly seeking to grow daily, being transformed, our prayers mean nothing. I heard the end of Cody's class. He was really preaching that at the end of class. I appreciate him for that. And that's the same thing that's being taught here. We have to remain faithful or else we have to strive to be faithful or else our prayers mean nothing. Number four, uh, perseverance. So a lack of perseverance can hinder our prayers. That's a key word that's connected to prayer throughout Scripture. I want you to turn for a moment to Luke chapter 11. Uh, I think this is the lesson, at least one of the lessons Jesus wants us to take here <clears throat> from his teaching in Luke chapter 11, where we find this parable. So this is a, another occasion wherein someone is asking Jesus to teach them how to pray, and then we have Luke's um, 
record of what Matthew records as, as what we call the Lord's Prayer sometimes. But then Jesus also uh, tells them a parable, verse 5. He said, them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves where a friend of mine has come to me from a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, no, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be open. Suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. Will he not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Of course, if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? All right, so the purpose, I think at least one of the purposes of this parable was to encourage the faithful to, to keep on patiently praying. The man is asking his neighbor for three loaves of bread, and even though he's characterized as his friend, he's, he's reluctant. All right, he's making excuses. But because of persistence, verse 5, the neighbor arises and gives him what he needs. And the, the point is not, as you know, the point is not that God is just eventually worn out by our prayers. But it's an argument from lesser to the greater, as Jesus shows in verse 13. Right? How much more will God, if, if this is how it works with men, for the sake of illustration, how much more will God give to you? The God who loves you, the God who wants what's best for you. People are bothered because requests come at inconvenient times, midnight hours and, and such. But with God, there is no night. This man's needs were small and they were answered grudgingly. Our needs are great. God answers lovingly and generously. Ask and you shall receive, Jesus says. And what he's, what it literally, your Bible might even say what the literal rendering is. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Present active. And so this, I think, challenges us to ask ourselves, do we, do we lack determination? Do we lack perseverance in our, in our prayers? You know, maybe we, maybe we make a, a commitment, you know, to pray at a certain time in the morning or, you know, not, not that that's ever laid down as a law in the, in the New Testament, a specific hour of, of prayer, right? All the passages tell us to pray without ceasing. You can pray before meals. It can be, you know, just a few words. It can be, it can be 15 minutes long. It can be an hour long prayer. It, it doesn't matter. But maybe we, you know, we start out with making a commitment and then over time, you know, we we begin to get distracted. Other things begin to take priority. We make excuses and supplant that time that we had set, up, set aside for prayer or study with something else. All right. that's, that's failing in perseverance. Right? Or, or if we relegate it to the times when we're, just, we're most tired. You know, is, that, is that really prioritizing prayer to God? You know, David said that he prayed seven times a day. Think of Daniel as another example. Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, when 
living as a captive in Babylon, that law was made, wherein if anyone prayed to a god besides the, the king, anyone prayed to anything besides the king, then he would be cast into a den of lions. And Daniel knows that the law has been signed in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10, and it says he goes up to his room where he had that window open toward Jerusalem, and he knelt and prayed three times a day just like he had always done. That's perseverance. And it wasn't that, you know, the, there was something, you know, special about the window or, or even the three times a day. The point is, is that he determined to do it. And he wasn't going to be dissuaded even if it meant I'm going to be fed to lions if I go and pray. I think of myself in light of that example. I'm a very squishy Christian compared to the resolve that Daniel had. Number five, withholding forgiveness. Certainly some of these fall under the broader umbrella of sin. I know that you know this, but these, this is something else that's specifically mentioned, and so I want to take just a moment to point this out, that we, when we harbor an unforgiving attitude toward others, withhold forgiveness from those who have repented, <clears throat> uh, we sabotage ourselves. Right? Because this is one of the things that Jesus teaches us to pray for. Matthew 6 and verse 12, forgive us of our sins as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. It's just taken for granted. As James also reminds us, James 2 and verse 13, judgment is without mercy to him that shows no mercy. You'll probably recall Peter asking Jesus on one occasion, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And maybe you've heard, as I have, you know, commentators will say, you know, the Pharisees would teach three was the limit. And so Peter doubles that and adds one for good measure. I don't, maybe that's true. I don't, I don't know. But this is a number that he chose. But we remember Jesus' response. No, not up to seven times. I tell you, up to 70 times seven. Uh, and so... We have to let this sink in, that, that to ask forgiveness for our sins while we withhold forgiveness from others, it's futile. The Lord warns us we cannot receive his forgiveness unless we are willing from the heart to forgive each other. And lastly, just plain old pride, pridefulness. And this will manifest itself in a number of ways. And we have to know that this is a hindrance to serving God generally. And so we certainly with regard to prayer, but uh, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I, I can't come to him so long as I'm seeking glory for self and, and glory uh, uh, of the earth and among men. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. And we'll, you know, see, this is a vivid example, very notorious example of this point here of the two men praying. <clears throat> this is Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. It says that he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. The two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, and the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was uneven, uh, unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exhausted, uh, exalted. And so pride, it's, it spills out. If we harbor pride, it's, it's going to manifest itself in our life. Um, you know, when this Pharisee, who is obviously the example we're trying to avoid imitating, yes, he was there uh, to, to pray in the temple, but it was just an exhibition. It was, it, it, was, it was just to show off. It was, as Jesus says, to exalt himself. But in stark contrast, this man that so many Jews would have frowned upon is praying with contrition. He's penitent. He's crying out for mercy as a sinner. And Jesus characterizes this man as humble. And he also, in verse 14, says, this is the one who is justified. And so my pride... My arrogance negates my prayers. But humility in prayer leads to blessing. Again, verse 14, this is the man who went to his house justified rather than the other. And the only way to pray with a humble heart then, I think this parable is also instructive, is what did this man remember? What was he conscious of? What was at the front of his mind? What was he so upset about? His sin. He recognized his need for mercy. And I'm convinced that's the way that we're going to have humble hearts in, in prayers. So remember that we, we couldn't approach the throne of grace at all. Certainly not with boldness, not, not even at all, if it weren't for Christ. Had he not poured out his life for the forgiveness of our sins, we would still be hopeless. So we have no reason to boast. We have no reason to be prideful. Had he not been raised from the dead, we would still be without an intercessor before God. But now he is our advocate. 1 John in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. So, you know, what reason really do we have to try and impress others with our vocabulary? If we're leading a public prayer, maybe like if we're in this situation and it's in a public setting... You know, there's no reason for that except to try and boost our own egos. And it leads to disaster. And so we shouldn't be concerned with making a spectacle of ourselves or trying to show other people how religious we are, but humbly acknowledging our, our sin and, and praying to God, recognizing who he is and what he's done for us. This is what he's called us to be. As Jesus tells us, don't, don't be like the hypocrites in Matthew 6, 5. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. They have earned their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. 
For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And lastly, our pride can manifest itself in uh, selfishness. This is another thing that James warns us against in James chapter 4. He says in verse 3 of James 4, You ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So we know clearly the language of selfishness is coming through. And James is saying this is why your prayers aren't effective. Because you're only thinking about yourself. And this, this happens when we're so wrapped up in, in the physical world and our, our material needs, things that Jesus has told us not to worry about, <clears throat> our own wants and, wants and desires, uh, that we forget to pray according to the Lord's will and prioritize the spiritual things that he would have us pray for. And so someone maybe thought of as Religious, maybe like that Pharisee was in Luke 18, but ultimately his prayers only serve self-interest. And maybe even things that we ask for, uh, we're asking because um, we want to please ourselves. It's not that we shouldn't petition, we shouldn't ask God for material things. That's not, that's not the point. But rather, <clears throat> James says, remember, your, your motives is what he has. Your motives are wrong. Well, our... As we're asking for these things, why, why is it? Is it because we need them, or is it because we're hoping to use them to the glory of God, or is it just so that, again, we can either bring glory to self or more comfort to self? So as we begin a new year, I hope that we've been encouraged to recommit to being a people of, of prayer. And just as we think through these points and perhaps others that came to your mind and just be honest about what's getting in the way you know is it my pride is it my lack of discipline is it you know is it laziness have i am i doubting is it because i don't spend enough time in in the word of god am i not persevering as i should we desire that our our prayers be offered and offered in a godly and an effective in an effective way. And if we if we do so according to Scripture, then we can be assured that that will be the case. We can be confident that they will be heard. Our Lord gave His life so that we could have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians one three, and certainly this is one of those that, that to come boldly before the throne of grace. In a time of need. At any time. But if we really want that access, we must love and obey Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's the question that I want to leave you with this morning. Is, is, is that who you are? Is that what, what you've done? Is that what you're doing? Before we can consider... These other points, are we even desiring to have fellowship with God through the Savior? His terms for this are, are very clear, as we saw in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 earlier, that our sin, the prophet says, makes a separation between us and God. And the only one who can destroy that barrier 
and who has, can bring it down is Christ and the sacrifice that he offered. Colossians 2 pictures Jesus as nailing those things to the cross, kill, killing our sin, as it were. It's one of the many pictures Scripture offers us to show how powerful his blood is. He can remove that separation. He can reunite, reconcile you to, to God. And he says in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And he says again in Luke 13, 3, that, that you'll perish if you don't repent. And his apostles took that good news to the world. In Acts 2, 38, the first time the gospel was preached, <clears throat> after Jesus ascended, Peter said, repent, each of you, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what do you need to do this morning to be reconciled to him, and can we help you in some way? Please come now as we stand and sing.